Well, God, thank you so much for this last week. Thank you for hearing our prayer Sunday and sending us the rain that we needed. Uh, we pray for the future, Lord, that uh, we would continue to get the rain we need in the quantity and the way that we need it, Lord. And um, we uh, are grateful, Lord, for your preserving and protecting us and being with us. We pray right now for a family that um, none of us know, but some in our church know them um, who lost a child through suicide. We pray that you would comfort that family and draw them close to you, Lord, and be their, their aid and their shepherd. We also pray, Lord, for Janet and for um, as she grieves Ben's death, and uh, we ask you, Lord, that uh, you would be her shepherd and her care, and that she would know that you're with her and walking with her in this dark time. Lord, thank you for our class today, and we pray that you would help us, that it would be uh, beneficial to us, it would aid us, but also, Lord, that we would enjoy our time together and in our discussion. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Okay, thank you. So we're at we're in the heresy zone. Come on, everybody, let's go. Okay, all right. And as we said last week, there's a fifth dimension beyond that which is known to man. It is a dimension. Is oh, sorry, I got to smoke a cigarette while I do this. A dimension as vast as space and timeless as infinity is the middle ground between light and shadow, between the pit of man's fears and the summit of his knowledge. This is the dimension of imagination. There's probably a lot more truth to that than... um, Anyway, it is also an area we call the heresy zone. So this is my little takeoff here. So again, our aims as we go through this class, become familiar with aspects of our early church history... Um, that's part of what we're, uh, part of what's intended behind this, and hopefully we'll gain. Understand several of the major heretical movements and moments of, for the first five centuries. Reflect on our own day and our place in history, and just as we think about these heresies, and then think about uh, maybe things that we've heard even in the moment uh, presently. And then, lastly or next to last, be equipped to explain to others what we believe and why it is important. And then ultimately, so that we're able to be aware, be stable, and grow. And this is those last two verses of Second Peter. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away by the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Those are our aims. I'm going to keep putting them up here so I remember our aims. So I don't know about the rest of you, but this will help me remember our aims. So the plan, as you saw last week, we did this last week. What is heresy and how to think about it? Uh, Today we're going to look at the Ebionites, and then there are quite a few others. Marcion, Docetism, Gnosticism, um, Montanism, Arianism, Modalism, Manicheanism, Donatist. Uh, Nestorianism and Pelagianism. So we're going to cover all of these in some way and maybe a few others as we go along if things come up that feel like I need to deal with some other issues as well. So, But this is the one we're going to be looking at today. So let's talk about, the. De- we're going to do some delineations and then we're going to define the Ebionite Christology, discuss the present day Ebionite expressions, and describe biblical Christology. So, I'm giving you fair warning. These last two, 
If you don't say anything, the class will be over. It'll be done. It'll be the shortest class in Heritage's history, okay? I'm expecting lots of engagement on those last two points because I'm going to have almost nothing on the slides because I want you to interact and actually tell me things, okay? This will be very helpful. So delineations. Remember, as we said last week, oftentimes the leaders of the various heresies were trying to answer our Lord's question, who do you say that I am? And I think it's important for us to remember that they are that many of times they're trying to answer that specific question. In almost every case, they answer that question from within the comfortable framework of their own heads. Okay? They, they work within their own system that they're used to. And you may say, well, what do you mean by that? Which I appreciate if you ask that question. What do you mean, pray tell? So, uh, what I mean is they, they are trying to answer that question from what's inside their own conceptual, philosophical, epistemological, how you know what you know, epistemology, political, theological, and sociological structures that they grew up with and were in the drinking water. Okay? They often try to answer from a comfortable position. And that's not unhuman. That's very human. You try to describe the Trinity to your kids, you're going to be thinking in categories that you're used to, and you're going to use illustrations that come from what you all are, what we are all familiar with as 21st century North Americans. That's pretty standard. The problem is that it becomes, it becomes a problem because of what it, how it limits. Okay, and I'll, I'll give you some examples in a minute. But I really want to emphasize this. I think many of them were trying to give genuine answers. They were not devilish. Now, the devil was behind it. We talked about that last week, but many of them were not devilish per se. They were trying to honestly answer the question, who do you say that I am? And they're answering from their own context. And if you know that, then it helps you to appreciate where they get it wrong, but why they were, how they got there a little bit better. Does that make sense? Okay. So here's an example, three examples from Scripture, okay? Uh, if you can see all of that. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Notice John was answering that question, Who do you say that I am? And he's baffled because of what he's, what he, the bit he knows and from his own framework, and Jesus doesn't quite fit all of the, his expectations. Does that make sense? It's the same thing later on, for example, in Luke 3. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, John the Baptist, whether he might be the Christ. They had all these expectations that they had just absorbed from their multiple generations of their particular society. And so those expectations from which they would then describe things and answer the question causes them to wonder if John's not the Messiah. Or when Jesus was being tried and he, and he was asked, are you the Christ? He says, um, they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. And he says, but uh, if I tell you, you will not believe. Part of it's just outright unbelief on their part, but part of it is because of their own cultural and, and, and uh, perceptual position Okay, they just would not believe. And you go through the Gospel of John and others and you can't miss it where that keeps coming up. They just can't fathom that this is the Messiah. Okay? Any questions on this before I move on? Can anybody see this? Can you all see this? 
I was a little worried about using red backdrop, but I thought, thought it would make us all angry and be perfect for hunting heresies. Yes. Yes. Right. Well, the thing about the apostles themselves, they didn't understand Jesus. I mean, all the way through John, it keeps saying that. They had no idea what was going on. And it wasn't until after his resurrection, ascension, and Pentecost, they went, I could have had a V8. You know. Right. But that's. An, that, and, and, and so none of this is just talking about just. Uh, only from the human side. This is mainly from the human side, but understanding all that other's background is really important. So, Which, by the way, this is all very human. So when you start talking to people, you need the Holy Spirit to actually open their hearts because you can lay out the best case ever and they can still say, what? You know, and you're going, this is clear as day. And they're going, what? You know, so. All right, so... Um, Let's just walk through the Ebionites very quickly. They're, they're kind of a, a fairly unknown group. We know things of them, but they were not a huge group. But it's interesting that their Christology, their study of Christ, what they say about Jesus, is, uh, actually keeps cropping up over and over again. So it's always worth the time to look at them, okay? So um, no one knows for certain how the Ebionites arose or from whence they sallied forth. They do appear to have been Jewish. And they appear to have surfaced in Palestine and the Palestinian regions after the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Before 70 AD, there's no, doesn't appear to be much of a mention of them, but it's after the destruction of Jerusalem, as the Jews are scattering and as they are um, reworking themselves, okay, so they, they have to rework themselves. They no longer have a temple sacrifice system, so they have to come up with some way for forgiveness, so they change some of that and, and work those things. All right, So there's lots of things going on, but they appear to have come forth in that time frame and from that region. And so just the Britannica.com, if you go to Britannica and you look up Ebionites, they have a short three-paragraph definition, but here's what, they, here's what Britannica says. The first mention of the sect is in the works of the Christian theologian St. Irenaeus. This would have been second century, notably in his books uh, called Against the Heresies. Other sources include the writings of Origen and St. Stephanius of Constantia. And so its members, the Ebionite members, evidently left Palestine to avoid persecution and settle in Transjordan, notably at the town of Pella and Syria, and were later known to be in Asia Minor and Egypt. The sect seems to have existed into the 4th century. So it, it kind of like a bad virus keeps popping up every so often, you know, so you'll run across it. By the way, I just I thought this was worth pointing out because there's a, a rumor that they that the Ebionites were actually started by Ebion of Pella, so there's the connection of Pella, okay? But uh, there's no proof that there was a, one individual that actually started everything. And so, in the Evangelical Dictionary of Theology, the Ebionites tended to deny the pre-existence of Christ. They venerated Jerusalem. They see Christianity as, an obe as obedience to a moral code that was higher than or fulfilled the law. And they saw Jesus as the anointed one. He was anointed at his baptism. 
And they, teach, they taught that Jesus was so selected, that Jesus was so selected, was selected as the anointed one because he kept the law perfectly. Isn't that interesting? And so uh, in Burkhoff, Lewis Burkhoff, which uh, this is a, a worthwhile book to have, by the way, The History of Christian Doctrine by Lewis Burkhoff. He says the sect, the Ebionites, really constituted the continuation of the Judaistic opponents of the Apostle Paul and was of a Pharisaic type. In other words, they still keeping to the law and circumcision and all those things. I was thinking the exact same thing as I was reading through the Ebionites, thinking, well, this sounds like Acts 15 never happened. Right? If you remember Acts 15. Right? And then in Lewis Burkhoff's History of Christian Doctrines, again, uh, in their opinion, in the Ebionites' opinion, Jesus distinguished himself from others only by a strict observance of the law and was chosen to be the Messiah on account of his legal piety. He became conscious of this at the time of his baptism when he received the Spirit which enabled him to perform his task, the work of a prophet and teacher. And so the Ebionite concept is that he became Messiah at his baptism when the Holy Spirit came on him. That's when uh, Christ came upon him. That's what Christ means as anointing. That's when Christ came upon him and that's when he becomes the Christ. But it's, notice it's a, he becomes the Son of God because, and then you start adding to the because. Does that make sense? I see squinty eyes. Yeah, trying to answer the question, who do you say that I am from within a Jewish concept, right, where it's all about law keeping, right, and no perspective of the pre-existence of the, of, of the Messiah. And you think about the confusion they had when, they, when Jesus talked about dying. Well, wait, wait, the Messiah is not supposed to die, Right? Oh, probably. Yeah. Yeah. Right, and and so there, the one of their holy books besides the Old Testament was appears to have been a rendition of the Gospel of Matthew that had been redacted or excised of certain things. So it's always possible they took out that those things were taken out, okay? And it became known, um, there was a version called the Gospel of the Hebrews at one point. And so it, all that stuff has disappeared, but, but from what we can gather, that, that's what they were doing. Yes, the Thomas Jefferson version of the Bible. Ah, hold that thought. Yes. All right. So, um, Alistair McGrath, in his book, Heresy, Ebionitism can be regarded as an attempt to constrain innovation. This goes along with uh, kind of uh, uh, Yvonne's question a minute ago. With an attempt to constrain innovation by insisting that Jesus of Nazareth be interpreted only within the traditional paradigms of theological rationality inherited from Israel. I think that's a good way to put it. Okay, From within their expectation, they had to interpret Jesus, and so it was 
to get away from the sense of the eternal existence of the Messiah, the Son of God, they couldn't do that because that would be irrational within their framework of rationality. I don't know how else to put it, but there you go. Sure. That's what we would say. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great question. Happens all the time. Right? Happens today all the time. I'm not saying they were looking for the correct theology. I'm saying they probably were very honest. At least uh, uh, there was a a sense of honesty on their part trying to make it work. You're right. We would say on this side, it was pounding a square peg into a round hole, whatever, right? But if if you were with them as they're working through it, you would be asking them other questions and they would go, what? Because they couldn't hear it. I mean, just go back to the Gospels. They cannot, I mean, even the disciples cannot perceive really who Jesus is. They're baffled by Him because He doesn't fit their expectations. And so it's the same kind of thing. I'm not talking about them being innocent. They're not innocent by any stretch of the imagination. None of us are. Right. I'm, I agree with you. Yeah. It's just like when you do an investigation, when you're doing an investigation, right, and you're coming up to somebody and they can't see this other stuff. Yes. Yes. Right. But, it's a very, but the point I was trying to get, part of what I was trying to get across is very human. The, the, the actions are very human. What they're doing is very, very human. Okay? Because it happens all the time. Okay? Anybody else on this? Yes. Yeah. When the traditional paradigms have no place for um, answering the question, who do you say that I am, thinking, oh, actually he's the eternal son of God and so forth. So they're using a traditional paradigm that strips away any other possible answer. And I mean, this ha- like I said, this happens all the time. So I'll give you an example. Matthew 18. There's a verse in Matthew 18, and people use it all the time. Where two or three are, gather to my name. And it's always used for what? Prayer for a really thin church service. I mean, preachers love to use that verse when three people show up for church, right? That verse has nothing to do with any of that. It has to do with church discipline. But we use it so often and misuse it so often that it becomes the paradigm, the traditional paradigm and then when you go in, you start, start saying, no, this has to do with church discipline. This is the look I get. Right? It doesn't make sense. So that's the kind of thing, the traditional paradigms. Yeah. Good. Yes. Yeah. 
Right, right. Yes, yes. Sure. Yeah. So if you get a chance, a good example of this would be reading Kaim Potok's The Chosen. If you ever get a chance to read, it's a great book. It's actually a wonderful story about friendship within a Jewish context, a Hasidic Jew and an Orthodox Jew, two young men, two young teenagers. They become vast friends. But in that is all these discussions. And one of the things, this is written probably in the 1950s. And one of the things that comes up, for example, is that many of the, of the, uh, of a, particular stream of Jews no longer were looking for the Messiah because they become so disillusioned with every offer of a Messiah and so they didn't they had no expectation of, of any things that you think they would have they, they were and this was in this is in the store and Chaim Potok is a is a, is Jewish and so he's actually telling you in the story this is the way it is you know this is the things are going so it's really a good anyways but it's along that lines yes the chosen Kaim, C-H-A-I-M, Potok, P-O-T-O-C. Yeah, Phil, uh, Scott asked if you buy 20 copies, could he get one? <laughs> All right, so that's just a brief overview. Here's, here's it in a nutshell. There's probably a lot more we could say, but they're basic ideas about Jesus, just trimming it down just specifically what they said about Jesus. Uh, drawn from within their own inherited theological rationality are Jesus was a good man. He kept the law perfectly. Jesus was a great teacher. Jesus was a great prophet. Jesus was anointed with the Holy Spirit at baptism. Thus, Jesus became the Christ, the Messiah at baptism. And thus, He became the Son of God at baptism. Some versions of Ebionitism would then say that the Son of God left him, or Messiah left him, at the crucifixion. In fact, Ebionitism doesn't seem to have much room for the crucifixion. Okay? Uh, some accepted it, and most didn't, from what, I, what, what I've read. Great question. That was... Some would have, yeah. I mean, and you, you kind of see this actually in the Gospel of John when they accuse Jesus of being conceived out of fornication. We've not been conceived out of fornication, right? Because Joseph and Mary were betrothed, but they were not yet married, right? So there's even that hint there, so. So this is often called, uh, this is a version of it, this is often called adoptionism, that, the son, that Jesus became the Son of God, He was adopted as the Son of God, uh, at his baptism, and uh, and so you you'll run across adoptionism throughout early church history and on, but but that's what that's usually called. Okay, is if you want to use that term, adoptionism. Any questions up to this point? Yes, yes, good answer. Yes. So I'm going to ask you, where have you heard similar? Thoughts. Let me go back to these real quick. There's, uh, wait, long way. Where have you heard similar thoughts today? What? Jehovah's Witnesses, um, maybe. But they would actually think that uh, Jesus uh, is, a, is divine, and the Ebionites would have said no. 
Mormonism. Did you say Mormonism? No? Okay, here's my Mormon expert over here. He says no. Yes. 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 Yeah. Usually most of the heresies do that. They spawn strange stepchildren, you know. And so, yes, David, did you have one? Ah, very good. So that's exactly right. If you go through and read the Quran and so forth, um, they do believe that Jesus did not die, that he, was, uh, that he is ascended, and he will come back to judge. They would add that to the last part of this. He will come back to judge the living dead. But basically, this would be their tenets. And so it's, uh, if you go into the history of, of Muhammad, the, the, it appears that he actually was influenced by a couple of Christian heretical groups in his formation, which seems to show up then in the Quran. And so you can almost, you can lightly say that Islam is actually a Christian heresy of some kind. Yes, good observation. Where else have you heard this? Oh, yeah, only the Old Testament. Yeah, 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 yeah. So where else? Yeah, secular atheism. Yes. 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 I remember in 1994, I guess, I was stationed at Omaha, at Omaha, um, in Omaha at Offutt Air Force Base, actually right outside of Offutt Air Force Base. And, of course, Time Magazine came out. It was around Easter time. So guess what Time Magazine put out? There are 2,000 reasons why Jesus could never have been resurrected and you all are fools for believing it, right? Or something like that. So I had, a, uh, I had an office mate there who was very intelligent, and uh, we got to talking about it. He said, well, did you see the, the time article? I said, well, I read it. And he goes, well, why do you people believe in the resurrection? You know, and so I told him, and he says, and I was dealing with him, he says, well, what's it matter? He was a good teacher. And I said, no, he wasn't. If what he said was not true, that he would die for our sins and be raised for our justification, that he was a liar. Or, or at the worst, I was using the C.S. Lewis line here. He was either completely off his rocker, or he was totally misinformed, or he was an outright liar. And you could just see his face. Jesus had no way to do it, but yeah, you do hear it in that. Where else do you hear this kind of stuff, this about Jesus? Oh, yeah, yeah. Almost rubs into a sense of uh, in- reincarnation. I remember in the 70s seeing signs on the light poles saying, come to our class so you can gain Christ consciousness. That was a, a typical 1970s, you know, LSD moment. So. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So there's a, a Methodist bishop. He's retired now. His name was William Willimont. His name is William Willimont. He's a very conservative fellow, but he was, uh, he was uh, in Alabama. He was a bishop in Alabama. And in one of his books, and this shows up in one of my books, by the way. It's a great quote. He says of his liberal tradition that he's actually trying to fight against a little bit. He says, uh, ashamed to preach Christ and him crucified, we proclaim humanity and it improved. 
you know, and it's just, I thought, wow, what a great line. What a one sentence. That's a, tw- that's a Twitter post. You could do but yeah, so you see some of that. What else? Where else have you heard this? Anybody heard a, a radio commentator that used to always talk about Jesus the great prophet? Bill O'Reilly. Now, I don't know what Bill believes. I've never read his book, Killing Jesus. He's probably okay because he's a Roman Catholic in good standing. But it was interesting because he would always say that. He would always say, Jesus the great prophet. Which I thought was intriguing because then he would never expound it beyond just he taught good things, he was a good guy. And it was just, you know, it's it's odd, you know. But like I said, I've never read his book. I read some articles about it, uh, some reviews of it, but I didn't read the book. So as you'll hear, you're going to hear, you hear this as you go along, you'll hear people using some of this. And so it gives you a sense of where, where maybe some of the oddities of it. Okay. Anybody else on that? Yes. Yes. That's a great point. That's exactly right. Okay? Anybody else? Great discussion. Now we're going to move to the biggie. Describe and explain the biblical Christology as an answer to Ebionitism. What would you say, using Scripture, what would you say biblically that actually maybe agrees with that point but goes further? Let's just try that. You want me to pull that back up here again? So biblically, how would you answer them in reference to these some of these points? Yes, John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, Word was with God, right? And the Word was God, right? And then verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So the pre-existence of Christ, He was not just a good teacher. He didn't become the Son of God. He's always been. You could use that. You could actually work with that. What else? David. Yeah, all the I am statements, right? Where he seems to be holding on to and drawing from uh, Exodus 3, verse 14. Ah, yes. Very good. Genesis chapter 1. Let us make man after our own image, after our likeness, right? So the plurality. Okay, what else? Ah, yeah. Only God is good. Yes, very good. Okay? Yes. 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 Yeah. Right. Right. Or, 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 behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, right? Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, very good. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Okay, who else?
Yeah, the prophetic fulfillment. So actually walking through the prophets. Very good. What else? How about passages like Titus 2, verse 13? Looking forward to the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for our sins, that He might redeem us from all lawless deeds and purify for Himself His own special work, zealous, uh, yeah, zealous for good works. Yeah, the book of Hebrews. Very good. Yeah. Colossians chapter 1. He was before creation. All things were created by Him and all things are created for Him. I mean, you're already moving out beyond their categories. Right? What else? What are the what other passages? What else would you think of? This is good exercise on Sunday morning. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Very good. Right. Why would you expect me, why wouldn't you expect me to be in my father's house? Right. Very good. At age 12. Yes. Yes. John 14, 6. I'm the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the father but, but through me. Yes, David. Yes. Yes. Yes, very good. So like chapter 1, verse 8, uh, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Yep, very good. And that comes through all the time. Yes, Tony. Yes, Hebrews chapter 7. You were talking about Hebrews, priest after the order of Melchizedek. In fact, the writer of Hebrews may actually be saying Melchizedek was Christ prefigured or, or uh, the type of Christ or some, in some sense the pre-incarnation of Christ. Yeah, yeah, Christophany. So very, very good. All right, that's great. So you pile all those on. That's good. And then what happens when you lay this out with your local Ebionites who work at the 7-Eleven or maybe they're at your Hobby Lobby or whatever, right? And you're sitting down with them and you're talking. And you lay all these passages out and they say, well, that was what Paul wrote. That was what James wrote. That was what Peter wrote. I don't believe any of that stuff. I believe that only the Old Testament, one of you mentioned that, and maybe this little version... Oh, oh, and I bought my version of the uh, uh, Jefferson, um, Thomas Jefferson Bible, right? Because Thomas Jefferson went through and cut out all the miracles in the Gospels, pasted it together, and then had it published. I mean, what would you say then? Yeah, that's, yes! Very good. Yes. Yeah, right, right. By the way, the Thomas Jefferson Bible is funny. There was a professor at Belhaven College, a university outside of Offutt Air Force Base who was a part of the Worldwide Church of God who was so enamored with Je- Thomas Jefferson, he actually republished his version of the Bible and put it out, and then nobody knows it was out there. So, Yeah, so, yeah, so you, once you bring that up, then you get to where what Moose was talking about when you start running across the fact that they don't want to hear those things, and now you've got a different issue, right? So very good. Anybody else? Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yep. Absolutely. Good. 
So just remember, if nothing else, just keep the shorter catechism in mind as a guide as you think about these, this subject and as you try to think through answers. And so I highly recommend everybody memorize number 21 specifically, but 22 goes with it. Who is the Redeemer of God's elect? The only Redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who being the eternal Son of God became man and so was and continues to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. And we'll come back to this catechism question throughout some of these other heresies. Number 22, how did Christ, being the Son of God, become man? Christ, the Son of God, became man by taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary, and born of her yet without sin. I think that's a good framework for you to keep in mind as you're talking with someone like this and saying this is where you, need to, you want to go eventually is to what's being laid out in those two questions and answers in the shorter catechism, and then you pull in Scripture for that. If they reject that, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting Jesus the Messiah, the eternal Son of God. Okay? And then I think, and, and Thomas T.F. Torrance is, is a kind of a persona non grata in our denomination, but this was a great book, The Trinitarian Faith. And here's what he says about that, about the Ebionites. The New Testament did not present Jesus Christ in contrast to God or alongside God. So I think that's a great statement to start out with. Not in contrast to God or alongside God, nor did the New Testament argue from one to the other as in Ebionite and Docetic. We'll talk about the Docetists later. In Ebionite Christology, but presented him in the undivided wholeness of his divine human reality as God become man. It is as such that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. By the way, he's Scottish, and so you'll notice the wonderful British spelling of Savior there. The immediate object of faith, the only begotten Son of God, apart from whom there is no way to knowledge of the Father. If Jesus Christ were not God, he would not reveal God to us, for only God, through God, may we know God. And if he were not man, he would not be our Savior, for only as one with us would God be savingly at work within our actual human existence. Typical Scottish academic hard statement, but it's a, I think it gives you a sense of the value and the importance of emphasizing this. If he's not God, that he couldn't reveal God, and if he's not human, that he's not God saving us in our, human, from our, in our humanity. good. Are you asking that or are you just stating? Okay. Thank you. Yes. Great. Anybody else? Any questions clarifying? Yes, David.
Genesis 3? I, I, it's easy to say, but I think about Paul quoting, in, in Romans 3, Paul quoting the Old Testament. He says, none, there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who seeks God. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah, yeah, right. Yes, we believe that. Yes, absolutely. Yes, yes. And, and so, the, the, uh, so just as, as an example, and I think this is very helpful, and this is, I stole this from Augustine, so if you don't like it, then tell him that. Okay, so, but the idea is that everything is already there in the Old Testament. The New Testament doesn't add anything to it. It turns the lights on. Right, so the analogy I use in new members class is, you know, Scott and Janelle, they're home. They, they, walk into, no, they walk into an Airbnb and the lights are out, right? And Scott runs in and he starts stumbling into things, right? What in the world is that, right? And Janelle says to him, you knucklehead, turn the light on. She turns the light on. Guess what? Did anything change in the room? No, it was all there. She turns the light on and goes, oh, it was a table. That's what I was running into. Tell Scott to turn the lights on before he walks into the room from now on. Right, so the Old Testament, it's all there. The New Testament turns the lights on for us. And so, so like you used earlier, you used Genesis 1, the plurality, right? And so, but it's not very, very clear. You really don't get it until you come to the New Testament, say the baptism of Jesus, and then you go, aha, now I understand what that was doing, right? So good, yes. Yes, amen, Woo! So, and, and that's a, I mean, that's a good thing to, uh, we'll end on this, but that's a good, important reference. They have no eyes. And so, how do we respond to them? You idiots! Or compassion. Right?
Yes. Right. Right, right. So John's asking, how do you draw together the full humanness and the full divinity of Christ within our frame as we think about it? Because we don't have any experience of that. We can't experience it. And that's a great segue for the future classes, John. Because we'll be de- that's where some of these other heresies are, are trying to answer that question and they fall off the rails in a different direction. So that's a great question. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Very good. Yeah, Isaiah 9. Very good. Yes, Moose. Yeah, there's no denying that there are there people are people and there are people who are who are intentionally doing those things. And so that's, that's exactly right. Yes. That's what Paul tells Timothy. He says, you know, respond to your opponents with gentleness. God might grant them repentance and they may come to their senses. I love that language. They may come to their senses, you know. And so, uh, but, but Moose is right. I and mean, there are some, and you run across them, I've run across them, and, and they're just, and you realize, you know, they know they're not, they're not, they are intentionally not going to be orthodox in their Christology. By the way, one last thing. When uh, Wes was talking about Bart Ehrman, Bart Ehrman, is not a good guy. I mean, so if you see him in the great, um, what's the name of the, great courses, when you see him there, I mean, he does a nice job. He's probably a really sweet fellow to be around. But he is just a full-blown, he even says, he calls himself a Gnostic. Yeah, okay. So he is not a good guy, and, but, but he's the one that, that, uh, that uh, news media will call to for a New Testament scholar to have him talk, and he's always undermining everything he said that, that you believe. And he takes great delight 
when kids show up for their seminar, their uh, freshman year of college, he even says it, he takes great delight in destroying their Christianity. Okay? Yes. Yes, yes. All right, so that was Bart Ehrman. That was our Bart Ehrman trash day. So we're done. Okay. So, Ebionites, that's where we're, we're going to end there, and we're going to get ready for uh, worship. Uh, next time, we'll do Marcion, okay? So, that's what we'll do at the next time we do this class, is on Marcion. And um, So, keep in mind, if you look it up, if you look him up, if you read some things on him, start asking yourself the question, how do I run across this today? Okay? Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for the truth that you have blessed us with. Thank you for the spirit of truth who's opened our eyes and is, given, and is leading us into all truth. Thank you for softening our hearts because, Lord, to be honest with you, some of us remember the days that we resisted you and shook our fists in your face. And yet you reached down instead of giving us what we deserve and you made us new and you made us your people. We thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, who became man and so was and continueth to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. We thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ who revealed you to us and who died for our sins and was raised for our justification. And now, Lord, as we get ready to enter into worship, we pray that you would draw us close and may our hearts be lifted up in Jesus' name. Amen.